U.S. Navy History, arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and I am joined by the Revelant XO, Christoph. Revelant, yes, yes. I need to put that on a business card. That sounds delightful. Uh, good to be here, Dale. Thank you. So, last week was a boat episode. This week is going to be a ship classification episode, because I keep getting asked about the history of, like, battleship. So I figured, you know what? We'll talk about battleships. Nice. So, uh, get your party name to it. Are you ready to get underway? I certainly am. It's one of my favorite games. All right. It's not a game. It's a boat. I, I that too. Yes. But in addition to a game. So, just as a brief descriptor, a battleship is a large armored warship with a main battery consisting of huge guns. And this type of boat dominated naval warfare in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So, the term of battleship, it was used into the 1880s to describe the ironclads. Remember those, okay. right? Indeed, yes. Now, historians are saying these ironclads are pre-dreadnought battleships. In 1906, when the UK commissioned the HMS Dreadnought, this started a revolution in battleship design. Every other design was influenced by the HMS Dreadnought, and that made the classification Dreadnoughts. Interesting. And, you know, dreadnoughts, eventually the term became obsolete when only battleships were. So, as you can imagine, these battleships were a symbol of naval dominance and national might for any nation that had them for, you know, decades. And it was a major factor in both military strategy, but also diplomatic strategy. Oh, yes. When you have uh, several battleships off your coast, you're more likely to uh, do some talking. Yeah, that's called uh, diplomacy at gunpoint. <laughs> so a arms race in battleship construction began in Europe around 1890s. And this ended up coming to the Battle of Tsushima in 1905. And the outcome of this battle is what influenced the design of the HMS Dreadnought. And then, again, once the Dreadnought was launched, that started an entirely new arms race. So three major fleet battles between these new battleships took place. There was a long-range gunnery duel at the Battle of the Yellow Sea in 1904, the Battle of Tsushima in 1905, and the Battle of Jutland in 1916. So who were the um, combatants in those battles? Because that, that's, those are not the geographies I would have anticipated, given that um, like when you're naming battleship classes after a British ship, I wouldn't have expected, like the Yellow Sea, for example, uh, who were involved in those battles. Well, the Battle of the Yellow Sea was uh, the Empire of Japan and the Russian Empire. And the 
Battle of Tsushima, just like the name states, is also Russian-Japanese. This was during their the Russo-Japanese War. Both of these. Okay. And that Jutland was World War One. Makes sense. And this Jutland was actually the largest naval battle and the only full-scale clash of dreadnoughts of the war. And it was really the last major battle in naval history fought primarily by battleships. Interesting. I guess it was uh, mostly carriers after that? World War II, yes, the carrier became dominant. But I also said major battle, not, uh, not yes. battle battle. Okay. That makes more sense, because I know World War I had several engagements. Yeah. So did World War II. World War II still had battleships. The U.S. had battleships up until 80... Oh, when did, when did the Missouri was decommissioned? 92? Wow. That's quite, quite a stretch. Yeah, she was the last... She was the last uh, uh, battleship that the U.S. had. My father served aboard her, and uh, I got to go on a Tiger cruise on her. That was fun. Oh, wow. Yeah, she was decommissioned in 1992 for the final time. And if you want to go see her, she is in Pearl Harbor. I know I wanted to go to Hawaii, and, uh, you know, I've been on the edge. There are various reasons and demands on my time and whatnot, but... Now that the USS Missouri is there, that might tip the scales. Well, yeah, how about something else? I'm from there. Oh. Maybe I can see where you were born and take a picture in front of your birthplace. You can. It's still there. Nice, nice. We'll talk offline. So the Navy treaties of the 20s and 30s limited the number of battleships that could be built and put in service by the losing countries of World War I. Mm -hmm. And so, but even with these limitations, you know, technical innovation in the design of battleships did continue. Both the Allied and Axis powers built battleships during World War II, though, you know, as we look back, the increasing importance of aircraft carriers meant that, you know, the battleship, importance and role kept getting put back and back and back. And so, you know, their impact starts to become less and less and less. I had heard that um, in the build-up to World War I, there was this huge effort on the European continent for, like, peace. Like, the people wanted no, no wars. Uh, they were doing what they could to kind of limit, like, put self-imposed limits. And I know Russia in particular, the Russian Empire... Um, because they were technologically behind, uh, they didn't want like any battleships created because they could see the other countries and how their ships were just so technologically advanced. They're like, hey, I have an idea. In, in, in the effort of peace, let's not build these things. And of course, the countries that did have those things went, to, oh, please, we're going to keep building them. Oh, yeah, that's the way it works. Everybody who's behind is like, Please stop. Right. Everybody that's not behind is like, why? You you can build your own battleships, Russia. Yeah, they can. And they have. And they well, sink. That's what I've heard. They only have one carrier right now, and it's been in dry dock for the last 20 years. Wow, that seems 
like not a good place to have your carrier. Well, when you can't get it to work. Hmm. Yep, that would be problematic, as they say. And when it is underway and you can see it from 50 miles away because it's putting out a huge plum of black smoke. Yep, yep, that's um, it's a problem. Yeah. So you're right. <laughs> see, history repeats itself. But anyway, yes, they were built during World War II and... So the value of the battleship has always, you know, been questioned. Even, you know, during the heyday of when they were built, there were few decisive fleet battles that battleships were a part of that were used to justify the vast resources spent on building the darn things. Oh, yeah. I imagine that's a very costly ship. Yeah. And even though they had huge firepower and a, and a ton of protection, they were increasingly vulnerable to smaller and more relatively inexpensive weapons like a torpedo or a mine mm -hmm. and, you know, aircraft and guided missiles when they became a thing. Yeah, it becomes harder and harder to justify that the expense of a ship like that when they can be taken out relatively easy. Well, I wouldn't say easy. They are still heavily, heavily armored. I did say relatively. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It takes four pegs, four, in the game. That's nothing to sneeze at. But, of course, also, naval engagements are also getting longer and longer and further and further away from each other because of aircraft, guided missiles, things of that nature. Right, that's true. And also the growing range of naval engagements because of this growing distances that the, the aircraft carrier is now replacing the battleship as the leading capital ship during World War II because of, you know, the distances getting further and further and further. Right. So that means that the last battleship to be launched was the HMS Vanguard in 1944. That's a lot earlier than I anticipated. I guess most the bulk of battleships that we've heard about or seen were they launched during World War II. That was the last time a battleship was built was during World wow. War II. Yeah, all the modern battleships that we had were just World War II boats refitted multiple, multiple times. That's unbelievable. I mean, just to think, like you mentioned, the Missouri was decommissioned in 92. And to think that that was made in the 40s and then just refitted with whatever technologies they, they, they thought would be appropriate, that's yeah. incredible. The Missouri herself was laid down January 6th, 1941, and launched January 29th, 1940. So her service life was 44 to 55, where she decommissioned for the first time. She was mothballed and then recommissioned in 86, and she was then decommissioned again in 92, and then finally stricken in 95. So four battleships were retained by the U.S. Navy until the end of the Cold War. And these guys were only around for fire support purposes and were last used in combat during the Gulf War in 1991. 
where she did fire support missions on Iraq. The The last battleship was struck in 1995 from the U.S. Naval Register. And a lot of World War II-era battleships actually remain afloat as museum ships. Yes, I have seen the USS Alabama in Alabama, and it was um, fascinating. Like, if you have an opportunity to go to one of those, you'll really see how tight those quarters were and how how well everything had to be coordinated in order to get anything done well. I was incredibly impressed. I've been aboard the USS Texas in Houston. Uh, well, she was in Houston. Right now she's in dry dock in Galveston. And then I don't think she's going back home to Houston. I think she's going somewhere else. I forget where right now. But uh, I've also been on the Missouri She's in Pearl Harbor, or like I probably said earlier. Uh, I've been on her as a museum ship and when she was active duty. All right, so let's dive deeper into the history, shall we? Sure. So a ship of the line, these would be the first, you know, quote, unquote, battleships, because these were the big behemoths. So a ship of the line. These were large unarmored wooden sailing ships which mounted a battery of up to 120 smoothbore guns and cannonades. These came into prominence with the adoption of the line of battle tactics in the early 17th century and towards the end of the sailing battleship's heyday in the 1830s. That's a lot of guns. I just want to I mean, that is an insane amount of guns on a sailing ship, no less. Well, I mean, you also got to realize 120 is going to be split between the port and starboard side as well. So there's going to be 60 guns on each side. But imagine, so how many (laughs) folks are loading and reloading and firing all these guns and, you know, commanding when those uh, volleys need to go out? That's just unbelievable. That's devastating. Um, I believe at least three to four guys per gun. And then you got the officers who were in command of them. Yeah, that's all that there's. Yeah, these boats had a lot of guys on them. Oh, yeah. So the sheer number of guns fired from one of these broadsides meant that the, a ship of the line could wreck any wooden enemy vessel that she has targeted, holding her hull, knocking down the masts, wrecking her rigging, and, you know, killing the crew but the nice thing for the targets is that the effective range of the guns were only a few hundred yards yeah as long as you I, and with a behemoth like that i'm sure it's difficult to chase a smaller ship down so if you could just stay out of the range you're probably okay oh yeah these things were large and in charge but slow and unwielding so yeah if you were smaller and faster you 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 ran that's right. <laughs> so over time, ships of the line gradually became larger and carried even more guns. But they stayed very similar to the, the classic designs. The first major change to one of the ship of the lines was the introduction of steam power as a auxiliary propulsion system. Not the main, the auxiliary propulsion system. Steam power was gradually introduced in the Navy in the first half of the 19th century. And it was initially used for smaller craft, and then later for, you know, frigates, and then on up and on up and on up. 
The French Navy actually introduced steam to the line of battle with the 90-gun Napoleon in 1850, which was the first true steam battleship. She was armed as a conventional ship of the line, but her steam engines could give her 12 knots. Wow. Which means that this boat had the potential to be a distinct, decisive advantage in any naval engagement. Yeah. Imagine even you're, you're battling traditional sail ships and the winds are either still or uh, adverse, like they're against you. Mm-hmm. To have a ship like this would be a game changer. It, it was. It, it completely was. So, as you can imagine, the introduction of steam accelerated the growth in size of the battleships. France and the UK, you know, they've been lifelong enemies at this uh-huh. time. France and the UK were the only countries to develop fleets of wooden steam screw battleships. Every other country stole their designs. Got it. Uh, Russia stole nine of them. The Ottoman Empire stole three of them. Sweden stole two. Uh, Naples <laughs> stole one. Denmark one. And Austria one. Wow. Yeah. So the adoption of sea power was only one of a number of technological advances which, you know, revolutionized warship design in the 19th century. The ship of the line was overtaken by the ironclad, which is powered by steam protected by metal armor, and armed with guns firing high-explosive shells. No more just solid shot. Yeah, how pedestrian. Now we can blow them up. Big bada-boom. So, as you can imagine, guns that fired explosive or incendiary shells were a huge, huge threat to wooden ships. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think about that. I just... Because when you talk about ironclads or like metal ships, uh, for lack of a better term, I keep thinking that you're stacking them up against other metal ships. But yeah, a high explosive round or an incendiary round against a wooden ship, that would be uh, a nightmare. Yeah. And these weapons actually became widespread very, very rapidly. After, you know, the introduction of 8-inch shell guns as the standard armament of the French and American battle line ships, or line of battle ships in 1841. For example of how devastating these shells are, in the Crimean War, six line of battle ships and two frigates from the Russian Black Sea Fleet destroyed seven Turkish frigates and three corvettes with explosive shells at the Battle of Sinop in 1853. Wow. And then the French ironclad floating batteries would use the same weapons against the defenses at the Battle of Kinburn and, you know, use them to great effect. (laughs) But, you know, back in these days, these guys really knew how to build their ships. And so wooden-hulled ships were able to stand up pretty well to a lot of these shots. For an example, the, the Battle of Lissa, where a modern Austrian steam two-decker, the SMS Kaiser, just started steaming up and down a battlefield. He 
it rammed a Italian ironclad. It took 80 hits from Italian ironclad. Many of them were the explosive shells, including at least one 300-pound shot at point-blank range. Golly. And this is a wooden ship. She lost her bow spirit and her foremast, and she was set on fire. And then the next day, she was ready to get back underway and resume her attack. Those are some impressive shipwrights that could get that all back together. They knew how to build them. So, the development of high explosive shells, of course, made the use of iron armor necessary. Right. So, in 1954, France launched the Galore, which was the first ocean-going ironclad warship. She had the profile of a ship of the line, but she was cut down to one deck because she heavy. So she was made mostly of wood, and she was reliant on sail power. She did have a propeller, and her wooden hull was protected by a layer of armor. And then the Royal Navy saw her and were like, yeah... Guys, we got to go back to the drawing board. We got us an arms race because we can't let them get get ahead of us. Oh, yeah, no way. So 14 months later, the, the, the UK launches the frigate Warrior, and that was superior to the Galore. So both navies at this and now is like, all right, we have to get going quickly. So they start converting existing screw ships of the line and putting throwing armor on them to make them armored frigates. And within two years, Italy, Austria, Spain, and Russia had all started ordering ironclad warships. I was just wondering about the time frame. This is all like in the 1850s, 1860s-ish, correct? Uh, 1859, 1860, 1861-ish. Okay. It's, I know there's an arms race, and I know there's a, a lot of competition to get ahead of the other countries around you, but I think this was during an unprecedented time of, time of peace for the European powers, so I think this is very uh, interesting that I guess they're not, since they're not having active wars currently, they're not spending all this money on trying to conquer land or or feed armies that are abroad, so they're just investing all this money into advancing the technologies of their navy. They're advancing the technologies which they want to use to kill their enemies. Oh, yeah. They're getting ready for... They, they know the big one's coming. Yeah. And so this keeps going until the famous Clash of the Monitor versus the Virginia. This was during the Battle of the Hampton Roads. The, at least eight navies now have ironclads when this battle happened. So navies also experimented with the positioning of guns, you know, turrets like on the monitor, the or central batteries, or babarettes. What is a babarette? That's something I've never heard before. It is a it's a it's a protective circular armor which is a support for a heavy gun turret. Okay, I could I can visualize that yeah so just think of it as protection for the gun okay yeah i could definitely if you're firing high explosive shells you probably want to protect the place where you store all of them 
before you fire them. You don't store them next to the gun. Where would you store them? In a very heavily armored ammo storage compartment. Oh, that makes a lot more sense. And you bring you bring the shells up when you want to use them. <laughs> yes. Please uh, be aware that my ignorance is on behalf of you. I know there are several listeners that are probably wondering, where the heck do you keep these shells? And that's my job to ask those silly questions, because I may know, I may not know, but I'm here to ask the questions on your behalf. And knowing is half the battle. <laughs> so as t steam technology develops, masks were gradually removed from battleship designs because going from sail to steam was very, very scary for a lot of these guys. And so fighting to keep the masts as backup happened quite a bit. And by the mid-1870s, steel was now used as construction material alongside iron and wood. For instance, the French Navy laid down the Redoutable in 1873 and launched it in 1876. She had a central battery and barbette warship, and she became the first battleship in the world to use steel as the principal building material. I guess, where were we technologically as a in the West, as a civilization, with steel. Is that something that was just, it was a brand new metallurgical technology and it just, it was it had an obvious application to the Navy? Or that seems, I don't know, it seems like people were making steel for quite a while before that, but I, I mean, I could be mistaken. So we dominated the steel industry in the 1940s. But, I mean, obviously, look what happened in the 40s. Mm -hmm. uh, da, 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 da. So we really started using steel during the Civil War. So, yeah, in, in the years after the Civil War, that's when the American steel industry grew with fervish. As, you know, once the, the we stopped fighting each other, we actually concentrated on expanding and fighting everybody else. Makes sense. And in between 1880 and the turn of the century, the American steel production increased from one and a, one and a quarter million tons to more than 10 million tons. Yeah, that's a lot. And then by 1910, 24 million tons. Dang. Does that answer your question? I think it does. Okay. I just remember like John Deere, for example, back in early 1800s, I'm not sure exactly when, maybe 1820s, 1830s, somewhere around there, he develops a steel plow. And a lot of farmers are freaking out because they're like, oh, that, is that going to poison the ground? We don't know what steel is going to do. But steel is around, mm -hmm. but it's just a matter of in what quantities and how long does it take for nations to realize that that is a, a superior metal building material for, yeah, for their, their ships. Well, there, there you go. That is the American side, at least. I don't know about the European. Earth. Well, except for, you know, when France built an, a steel warship. Right. <laughs> so the term battleship is officially adopted by the Royal Navy in 1892. By, you know, the 1890s, there was a 
ships started to look the same because the designs were being stolen so much that everybody was just like building the same thing. So the Royal Navy's like, okay, well, now we're going to develop what we're going to call pre dreadnoughts. You know, we're going to get away from these, these battleships and go for the pre dreadnought. So, but they're still battleships. <laughs> right. These are, again, heavily armored ships mounting a mixed battery of guns and turrets and no sails whatsoever. That's, that's called commitment. Yeah. So the typical first-class battleship of this pre-Dreadnought era displaced between fifteen to 17,000 tons and had a speed of about, thir- or had a speed of about 16 knots. Wow, that's pretty zippy had a armament of four 12-inch guns and two turrets, both fore and aft, with a mixed caliber of secondary battleship armaments around the superstructure. So these slow-firing 12-inch guns were the principal weapons for battleship-to-battleship combat. You know, oh, there's a big boat, shoot it with the big guns. (laughs) Yeah, makes sense. Now, the secondary batteries had two roles. Against major ships, they thought a hail of fire, quote-unquote, from a quick-firing secondary weapon could distract the enemy gun crews by, you know, putting little holes in the superstructure. And, of course, the smaller boats, they're going to be much more effective. Oh, yeah. They'll just get shredded. Now, there were even smaller guns, like 12-pounders and smaller. These were reserved for protecting the battleship against the threat of torpedo attacks from destroyers and torpedo boats. Yes, they used smoothbore and rifled at the same time. I know uh, the last EXO was quite surprised when he heard that. That is surprising. I mean, I'm just, you're throwing a lot of terminology, new technology at me, and I have There are some questions that are percolating, but I'll ask in a minute. Oh, okay. So the beginning of this this era coincided with Britain wanting to reestablish her own naval dominance. For, you know, many, many years, Britain had taken her naval supremacy for granted, and she got taught a lesson. So in 1888, when there was a war scare with the angel enemy of France happened, they built up the, oh, and the Russian Navy building up, they were like, you know what? Or well, we need more boats. And that made the, Brittle Navy, the British Naval Defense Act of 1889 come into existence. And they laid down an entire fleet at once. They started building wow. an entire fleet, which included eight new battleships. That is very costly, but I'm sure uh, paid great dividends. Well, you got two two navies breathing down your neck. You're like, oh, we need some more defenses. Yeah, especially if you're an island nation. That's probably your best defense. Yeah. So they 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 had they hoped that the that this would deter France and Russia from building more battleships, but both neighbors were like, that's not going to stop us. We're just building more. What the heck? <laughs> So in the last years of the 19th century and the first years of the 20th, the escalation in the building of battleships became an arms race between Britain and Germany. The German Navy 
laws of 1890 and 1898 authorized them to build 38 battleships. This was a serious threat to the balance of naval power. Britain answered this with more shipbuilding of their own. And by the end of this pre-Dreadnought era, British supremacy at sea is has been weakened quite a bit. In 1883, the UK had about 38 battleships, which was twice as many as France and almost as many as the rest of the world put together. Wow. But in 1980 or 1897, that wasn't the tr- that wasn't the truth anymore because France, Germany and Russia and Italy and the United States and Japan the Ottoman Empire, Spain, Sweden, Denmark, Normandy, Netherlands, Chile, Brazil. They all had they now all had fleets of armored cruisers, coastal defense and monitors. That's a lot to contend with. That is. I mean, I can see why alliances became a big deal. Yeah. So, pre-dreadnoughts continued the technical innovations of the ironclad. Turrets, armor plate, and steam engines were improved over the years. Uh, torpedo tubes were also introduced. A small number of designs, which included the um, the uh, Virginia class and Kearsarge class from the Americans, they experimented with eight-inch intermediate battery superimposed over twelve-inch primary batteries. So a gun within a gun. Okay, that's oof. Uh. The results are poor because of the recoil and blast effects meant that the 8-inch battery is not usable. And they were not able to train the primary and intermediate armaments on it on different targets, which means now we have tactical limitations. So this design saved weight, but they was it was it was crap it was bad it didn't work yeah so that brings us to the dreadnought era in 1906 the british are at it again they launched the hms dreadnought this was because a admiral a guy named sir john fisher wanted it well if you got a sir at the front of your name and you want something it probably happens, especially back in the day. Yeah. So once HMS Dreadnought is launched, boom. Just like that, every existing battleship is now obsolete. That's pretty awesome. I mean, I'm, to be on the, the, the end that develops that new ship, once you launch a ship that is so technologically advanced, everything else just becomes, oh, well, you're a relic of the past now. Yeah. Well, the reason why everybody's a relic of the past now is because she's launched with a all-big-gun armament of 10 12-inch guns. Yeah, She has huge speed advantage from steam turbine engines, and she is heavily protected by armor. She made every other navy in the world look look at her, look at their own battleships, and go, well, crap. <laughs> we just spent a bunch of money on this. And now we got to start all over again. Oh, man. 
Now, the Japanese weren't as far behind as everybody else. They had actually put down a their own all-big gun battleship, the Satsuma, in 1904. Because, you know, the concept has been there for quite a while. It just hasn't been validated in combat yet. Right. So while everybody else... So the Japanese are not as far behind as everybody But, you know, Dreadnought, she sparks a whole new arms race, principally between Britain and Germany. But, I mean, everybody wants one of them new fangled Dreadnoughts. So you mentioned earlier that there's a lot of theft of design from various, you know, the French and the English are making these designs. Everybody's either copying them or stealing them or something. So when the British make this new Dreadnought-class battleship, uh... Is there, do they protect like the IP or how, can they keep other nations from copying them? Or how does, how does that play out? Spies, man. The spies. They're going to come in and steal your stuff. That happens all the time, everywhere. At, Spycraft. And, and no, one Navy can't go to another Navy and say, hey, that's my design. You owe me royalties. What are they going to, they're going to be like, uh, fire? No. I can see that. You have to introduce uh, purposeful weak points. And it's like, yeah, we just know what to hit right here. Yeah, but everybody else will know that weak point too. It's in the ah, design. That's true. But you can you can uh, craftily work around that weakness. I don't know. I'm I'm not. I don't have a sir in front of my name, so maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Well, uh, it's 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 espionage. It's the the long game of trying to trick your opponents. Got I mean, it. that's probably why the Russians had a completely round battleship one time. Completely round, you it say? It was completely round. Go listen back to uh, one of our boat episodes. It's in there. I forget which one it is okay. right now. I have to scrub through those. That's that's interesting. Oh, it was hilarious. Also, uh, Japan being, again, another island nation, I can see the emphasis on their Navy technology. Yeah. So the technological development continued and got even more of a rapid pace through the Dreadnought era, you know, with, with huge changes in armament, armor, and propulsion. Ten, just 10 years after Dreadnought was commissioned, much more powerful ships were being built. These were the super Dreadnoughts. So in the early 20th centuries, in the first years, a number of different navies started experimenting with a new type of battleship with a uniformed armament of heavy guns. A guy, an Italian Navy chief guy who designed boats named Admiral Vittorio Canabarti. You have to wave your hand when you say that. Try that again with the, with the hand Vittorio wave. Vittorio Canabarti. Well, that's it. That's it. Is that better? You know, nobody could see us oh, doing man. this. No, but they can hear it. They can hear it in the voice when you're like, you just, if the hand is still, it's like, okay. But if you're moving it, yeah, that's, that's a spicy meatball. Yeah. So this is the guy that came up with the concept of the all big gun battleship in 1903. And when the Italian guys were like, nah, this is just, no, we don't want to do this. He wrote an article in in a magazine called Jane's, which was which is a it's a navy article with about warships. 
And it's pretty, he proposed in this article an ideal future British warship, a large armored warship of 17,000 tons, armed only Whoa. with single caliber main battery, carrying 300 millimeters or 12 inches in belt armor and capable of 24 knots. So the Russo-Japanese war actually provided operational experience to validate the all-big-gun concept. During the aforementioned Battle of the Yellow Sea, uh, uh, Admiral Togo of the Imperial Japanese Navy, he started firing 12-inch gun guns at the Russian flagship, Tzvarshich, at uh, 14,200 yards. Golly, quite a distance. Mm-hmm. And he did it on purpose. So at the Battle of Tushima, uh, Rear Admiral Brozenvaskis flag flagship fired the first 12-inch guns at the Japanese flagship Mikasa. Mikasa at 7,000 meters. Wow. Even closer. So they say that these engagements demonstrate the importance of the 12-inch guns over the smaller counterparts. Though a number of different historians take a secondary view, saying that the secondary batteries were just as important as the larger weapons when dealing with smaller, faster-moving torpedo craft such as when the Russian battleship Kanya Survolvo at the at the Battle of Tsushima had been sent to the bottom by a destroyer who launched torpedoes. Ah. So as early as 1904, good old Jackie had been convinced of the need for fast, powerful ships with a all-around big old gun armament. And if the battles between the Russia and Japanese influenced his thinking, it did persuade him that he needed to standardize the 12-inch guns. He, he also had concerns of submarines and destroyers, and these boats threatened to just outrange the battleships, their guns. Okay, really? And this is what made speed imperative for the capital ships. Makes sense. Yeah, they need to be able to chase them down and then hit them. So he was like, light bulb, the battle cruiser. It's lightly armored, but heavily armed. We'll throw eight 12-inch guns on it and propel it to 25 knots with steam engines. Wow. This. Very impressive. Yeah. So this is the design that the Dreadnought was designed around. Laid down in 1905 and completed by 1906. She carried 10 12-inch guns, 11-inch armored belt, and was the first large ship to be powered by turbines. Her mounted guns were in five turrets, three on the center line, one forward, two aft, and two on the wings, giving her a launch angle about twice the broadside of any other warship. Oh, man, that is awesome. Uh, she kept a number of 12-pound guns to use against destroyers and U-boats, 
and her armor was heavily heavy enough for her to go head to head with any other ship in a gun battle and hopefully win well more than hopefully yeah that's you you want to have more than a 50% chance yeah so after dreadnought was put put out there she was followed by three invincible class battle cruisers invincible that's i guess it if you have a vision board, it's like, what do I call my ship? Invincible, yes. Yeah, uh, that's the British for you. Mm-hmm. They did that stuff all, they'd still do that stuff, I'm sure. Well, dread not. I mean, that's, yeah, we're not afraid. They they built these three battlecruisers slower because they waited wanted to wait until the dreadnought was out there for a while so they can see what's going on with her and incorporate better designs into the battlecruisers. Now, Chrysler had intended Dreadnought to be the last Royal Navy battleship, but this design was so successful, he found no, pretty much no support to switch to a battlecruiser Navy. Wow. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, there were some problems with the boat. The wing turrets, for instance, had limited arcs of fire, and it strained the hull when a when they fired a full broadside. Ooh, yeah. And the top of the thickest armor belt was actually below the water line when, you know, the boat was fully loaded. Oh. But, you know, the Royal Navy were like, oh, we love it. Let's get another six. So the American design, which was the South Carolina was authorized in 1905 and was laid down in 1906 and was another of the first dreadnoughts. She and her sister, the USS Michigan, were not launched until 1908, but they both used triple expansion engines and had a superior layout of the main battery. Because they were like, those wing turrets were stupid. Get rid of them. (laughs) So they had the same broadside, even though they had fewer guns. Wow, that's interesting. So you still call an American ship a Dreadnought class, even though Dreadnought is kind of a, a British thing? Is it because we, we're we utilizing a Dreadnought design, or is it because it has to meet certain criteria to be declared a Dreadnought class ship? Well, we call them all these things now, but the classification has evolved over the years. This is what we're calling it all now. Okay. But, I mean, America and Britain were, you know, were still not uh, that far removed by this time. So, I mean, it's still the same people. That's true. I could see that. I mean, it's only been, what, 80 years since the last time they drew each other's blood? Yeah. It was a quick turnaround after the revolution. Uh, once Napoleon kind of started making noise, they're like, hey, let's let's work together. Yeah. And we've been friends ever since. That's right. Thanks, Napoleon. And on that high note, why don't we save the rest of this for next time? Ooh, that's exciting. Yes. So we are partnered with HeroCars.us, where at the end of each episode, we honor one of our fallen heroes, one of our fallen angels. So today we are honoring Fireman Second Class Myron Alonzo Brophy III. His hometown was Rutland, Virginia. 
He was stationed on the USS Arizona BB-39. He received the Purple Heart, and his date of sacrifice was December 7th, 1941. Killed in action at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. He was 22 years old. So Myron was born in Dorset, a small town uh, in the Green Mountains of Vermont, on December 1st, 1919. His father, Myron A. Brophy Jr., worked in a novelty shop. When the elder Brophy passed away in 1927, Myron III was just seven years old. Brophy's mother, Mary Eliza, took a job at as a hospital housekeeper to support the family. When Mary Eliza passed away in 1933, the 13-year-old Myron moved in with his sister, Jessie, in nearby Rutland, Vermont, 30 miles to the north, and he graduated from Rutland High School in 1938. Brophy enlisted in the United States Navy January 23, 1940, at a time when Europe was at war and Japan was aggressively seizing territory throughout the Asian Pacific region. The United States remained at peace, but was beginning to build its military preparedness for a looming involvement in Europe that many believed was inevitable. Brophy was trained as a fireman second class and appointed to the USS Arizona, BB-39. She was a battleship signed to the Pacific Fleet in Pearl Harbor on the island of Oahu in the state of Hawaii. On December 7, 1941, Arizona, along with much of the Pacific Fleet, anchored in Pearl Harbor and was, quote, suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan, as President Franklin D. Roosevelt declared in an address to Congress a day later. In that speech, Roosevelt famously referred to December 7th as a date which will live in infamy. Uh, the surprise attack by the Japanese propelled the United States into World War II, and a few days later, on December 11, 1941, Nazi Germany and fascist Italy declared war on the U.S. and formed an alliance with the Empire of Japan, the Axis powers. At Pearl Harbor, America's first battle in a war that would see an estimated 70 to 85 million lives lost worldwide. Arizona, she was moored at Berth Fox 7 on Battleship Row alongside the repair ship Vestal AR-4. Just before 0800 on December 7th, 1941, Arizona's air raid alarm sounded. With barely enough time to realize that the alarm was not a drill, the battleship was hit by eight Japanese armor-piercing bombs dropped from horizontal bomber planes. This massive explosion set Arizona ablaze. Most of the ship's crewmen perished in the explosion. Arizona quickly settled to the bottom of Pearl Harbor, where she still rests today. Arizona had 1,512 personnel on board that day. Of the 2,341 U.S. service members lost in the attack of Pearl Harbor, nearly half were aboard Arizona. Fireman Second Class Myron Alonzo Brophy III, aged 22, along with 1,177 of his fellow crewmen, is entombed in the hull of the ship, half a world away from the Green Mountains of Vermont. In Honolulu, Hawaii, F2C Brophy is memorialized in the Courts of the Missing at the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific. So, Fireman Second Class, Myron Alonzo Brophy III, thank you. Thank you. All right, Christoph, would you like to take us out? Uh, yes. Uh, thank you very much, everybody, for joining us at the U.S. Naval History Podcast. 
Uh, check the show notes, and then you can find out where we're at on Twitter. Uh, USN History Pod on Twitter, uh, US Navy History Podcast. Uh, on we're on iTunes and YouTube and many audio places. And then there's also a Discord channel. You're gonna talk to fellow naval enthusiasts or just crack wise or whatever you want to do. That's good. Uh, in addition, usually that's where I conclude things, but today we do have a review that I would like to read on the air. The review comes from somebody with the moniker DK11H, and they say, Five stars, informative and awesome to listen to. Uh, thank you, DK11H, or 11H, not sure how you prefer that. Um, really appreciate it. It means a lot to us. Uh, and if anybody else out there wants to review, please do so on iTunes, and we will read your review on the air. Unless you specifically say, do not read my review on the air, but... You know, come on, give yourself some credit. And with that, we will want to wish you fair winds and following seas. Goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing. Departing.